0: At this time, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to the Gospel of Jesus Christ according to Matthew, chapter 19, verses 16 through 30. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 19, and verse 16. This is the Word of God. Let's give careful attention now to it, beginning in verse 16. Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God but if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions." Then Jesus said to His disciples, Assuredly, I say to you, that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When His disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter answered and said to Him, See, we have left all and followed You. Therefore, what shall we have? So Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, that in the regeneration when the Son of Man sits on the throne of His glory, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for My namesake, shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last First, may the Lord bless the reading of His word to us this morning. Amen. Well, relying upon God for His help and blessing this morning, let's turn back to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19, focusing our attention upon verse 16, where we read this. Now, behold, one came and said to him..." And this is referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. Somebody comes to Jesus. "...Behold, one came and said to Jesus, Good Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Good Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? life. Most of us, many of us are familiar with this passage as the encounter between the rich young ruler and the Lord Jesus Christ. We refer to this man as the rich young ruler because if you compare the three instances in the Gospels where this is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke you'll find that if you piece together the material, it's clear that this man had great wealth. He was rich. It's clear that this was a young man, as we see in our text. And it's clear that he was a ruler, as one of the other Gospel writers tells us. He was a ruler, most likely in the Jewish synagogue. Perhaps even ruling on the Sanhedrin, that authoritative council that governed the Jews in Jerusalem, the rich young ruler. This man had everything that the world craves for satisfaction, even in our own day. These three things that characterize this man are still three of the main things that people in this world who are pursuing satisfaction say, if you have these things, if you can get these things, if you can keep these things, then you're going to have a happy life. Money money the bible tells us that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil and yet the love of money is exactly what we see in the world around us people obsessed with money they'll do all kinds of things to get it whether it be not working so they can get free money from the government or working so that they can earn it and perhaps even engaging in deceptive practices and fraudulent activities in order to get money. Beg, borrow, steal, however, however you get it, the world tells us that you need money. Now, of course, money is important. The Bible tells us that uh, in so many ways, it's important for us to earn a living and save our money and use it wisely as stewards of the good gifts of God. But the world doesn't take that approach. The world says... You need money so that you can go out and buy things and have wealth and have comfort and ease and security. Money is the path to pleasure. Money is the path to superiority as you wear the tokens and the signals uh, and the status symbols of your wealth. Money is the path to peace of mind. You you hear the, the pyramid scheming scammers out there and they'll tell you that uh, the person who thinks the most about his money is the person who doesn't have it. It's like someone who doesn't have oxygen, someone who can't breathe. They're thinking more about oxygen than the person who just has as much oxygen as he needs. He's breathing without a care in the world, and so what you need to do is get tons of money, and and then you'll be able to sit back and not even think about money, not even worry about money. Uh, and, and of course, we know that uh, that's utter folly and that the Bible condemns that, that in fact the desire for money in the human heart, we can, whether it's in Ecclesiastes or Proverbs or just plain common sense, tells us that the desire for money that exists in the fallen human heart is such that it will never be satisfied. It's like death in the grave, the Bible says. It's just people keep dying and the grave is never satisfied, neither are the covetous eyes and hearts of men but they say get money and you'll you'll be happy uh, like all the celebrities that have tons of money and then commit suicide and all, all of the the people who at the end of their lives having had great wealth they write their memoirs and you find that uh, they didn't have peace of mind and they were suspicious and suspecting and nervous people and and uh, the more you look at the people in our society who seem to have attained what you're supposed to attain to get happiness, you look at the, the athletes, you look at the movie stars, you look at the, the politicians and, and the billionaires, do they look particularly happy? Do they look particularly at peace and at rest? No, they're often very angry and smug and clamoring for attention clinging to the things of this world and doing whatever it takes to get more and more and more. And that's the people that have it. Most of us are probably never going to obtain anything even close to that. But the world says if you can get wealth, then the fact is you'll be happy. This man had wealth. He was rich. He had great wealth. He also had something that our society absolutely obsesses over, and that is youth you go into West Bloomfield and you see uh, the the old man with the gray hair driving his, uh, you know, convertible, uh, Porsche convertible or whatever, you know, and you're like, well, he's got the money, but, you know, how much is he going to be able to enjoy it at that age, right? But this guy had the money and he had the youth to enjoy it. He had the the, the physical uh, and mental energy, clarity, Uh, Perhaps we could say even the appearance. He's a young man, so perhaps uh, he he adorns himself in wealthy garments and he's good looking and he's able to engage in the pursuit of uh, all kinds of pleasures at that young age. And and he has youth and our society wants youth. Uh, Our society worships at the altar of youth. The Bible says that, in fact, gray hair is a crown of glory so if you're thinking about that guy in West Bloomfield but but gray hair is a crown of glory if it is found in the way of righteousness if it reflects a life of honoring God and gaining valuable godly experience in honoring the Lord Uh, that gray head is a crown of glory but not so in the world around us in our society centuries ago people would wear you know, powdered wigs, not suggesting we should go back to that, but they'd wear powdered wigs so as to look older in the courtroom or in uh, the the political sphere. They would try to look older so that they would have more respect. Nowadays, it's the opposite. People are always trying to look younger and and dyeing their hair and doing everything they can to try to look as young as possible, uh, And and that's what we see all around us in the culture, in our society, and no doubt that's influenced by the television where, you know, you watch these people in the news and in sports, and, you know, you've been watching them for, in my case, you know, decades, these TV personalities, and it's amazing how at least if you squint, they almost look exactly the same as they did 25 years ago. Uh, But if you don't squint, you can see, you know, they've had all kinds of surgeries and and uh, it's not always a pretty picture. But the fact is, we want youth, we want to have it, we want to enjoy it, and we want to keep it as long as we can, even to the point of people that are 75 trying to look 45 or 55, with, of course, mixed results. Just Google search Wayne Newton for some of the mixed results. It doesn't always pan out well, but people will go to great lengths to try to look a certain way. This man had that youth, and he also had power. Not the sort of power where uh, we see political figures wielding power and yet they're despised by the masses of people. And so they may have power, but in the big picture, do they really have influence? They have authority, but do they really have the sort of honor and dignity and respect and reputation? But this man had all of those things. This man was a ruler, as I said, either in the synagogue or even on a greater scale on the Jewish Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. And so he not only had power and authority in his name and in his status, but the fact is that he would have been well respected because this was a religious position. He was elevated as an officer in the Jewish church, as a ruler and governor among the people of God. And so, he would have been the sort of person as he's walking down the street that parents would say, that's the sort of person I want my my son to grow up to be like. This is a a godly person, a moral person, a religious person. This is a man with not just the status of power and authority, but real influence and reputation in the society. Uh, You can think again of... I mean, the President of the United States, whether it was the previous administration or the current one, uh, there's a status of power, but the average person may have far different, uh, a far different outlook on, on whether they truly have dignity and whether their reputation is what it says on paper. So this man had all of it. He had the money, he had the youth, he had the power and the reputation. And yet, though the world says if you have these things, You'll be satisfied. The fact of the matter is that this rich young ruler was not satisfied. It's clear from our text that he was definitely not satisfied. He was dissatisfied and he knew that. There are many people that are dissatisfied, but they haven't really engaged in enough self-reflection to come to grips with it. They're unsure. There's something in the back of their minds. Perhaps they're uneasy about things. There are anxieties they experience or they're they're sometimes disappointed at uh, what they expected to be their life experience and it's just not as sweet and enjoyable as they thought. But they're not fully coming to grips with what this man came to grips with and that is, I'm dissatisfied. Uh, I have the wealth, I have the youth, I have the power, I've got it all, but I am dissatisfied. And you can see in this man something of what our forefathers would have referred to as an awakened conscience. When we speak of the great revival in the 18th century as the great awakening, understand that language is technical theological language. An awakening means that not, not, not that every person that's awakened is converted. We need to understand that. Awakening is when a person who is unconverted, And this is the chief use of it, there are broader applications of course, the awakening of the church in general, but but oftentimes this term awakening refers to masses of unconverted people that are awakened to the reality of their sin and their guilt. They're awakened. It's like a bucket of cold water is dumped on their heads and all of a sudden they realize death, eternity, sin, God, judgment, I need to do something, I need to find some answer to my question. This man had an awakened conscience. And that's so important, so valuable. Not everyone who has an awakened conscience comes to faith in Christ and finds true salvation through the Gospel. There are a lot of people that have an awakened conscience and then they go to some false religious group who sprinkles some holy water on them or something like that. Oh, now I'm good to go. Or they have an awakened conscience and they say, okay, I'm going to give money to the... Red Cross or the United Way or I'm going to volunteer at a soup kitchen, oh, and now their conscience is back asleep, you see. Not everyone who has an awakened conscience who comes to grips with the obvious reality, I'm going to die, I didn't get here by accident, there's a God, there's a judgment, there's an eternity. Not everyone who comes to grips with that reality and seeks a solution, seeks it in the right place or in the right way. But it's it's a good start. It's a good start. Uh, This man is self-consciously dissatisfied and awakened in his own conscience. He's dissatisfied with his existing knowledge of God. That's why he comes to Jesus. That's why he comes to someone whom he describes as a good teacher. He needs to be taught. He's a ruler, a governor in the Jewish community, the Jewish religious body. He has some knowledge, like Nicodemus, who Jesus says is the teacher of Israel, but Nicodemus didn't know the first thing about salvation. He didn't even understand the idea that someone has to be born again, and they have to be given a new heart and a new start in order to enter the kingdom of God. Nicodemus... In John chapter 3 didn't understand any of those things and he was probably rubbing shoulders with this rich young ruler in governing uh, the, the people of God but this man comes to grips with the fact that he doesn't know these things he's dissatisfied with his existing knowledge of God so he says okay here's a teacher come from God here's a good teacher uh, perhaps he's dissatisfied with people he would describe as bad teachers we don't know but he's going to this teacher whom he says is a good teacher. And he's going to bring his questions. He's going to bring his concerns. He's awakened and he's going to come to this teacher for instruction. He's also dissatisfied with his existing readiness for death. You'll notice his question deals with eternal life. How can I inherit eternal life? If you look at Mark and Luke, they use the word inherit. Here it says... Uh, you know, what things shall I do that I may have eternal life? He wants eternal life. He realizes his physical life is going to end and then what about his soul and what about his eternity? He's not so foolish as to think that he dies and his soul poofs out of existence or that he doesn't have a soul and he's just some sort of evolved animal. He has too much common sense for that nonsense. But he's not satisfied with his existing readiness for death and for eternity. And so he wants to make sure that he has eternal life. How do I get it? How do I know I have it? Do I have to do something to inherit it or to obtain it? He's not happy with his current outlook on eternity. And he's also dissatisfied uh, with the answers that he's received from others. This is a man who would have been in the Jewish synagogue week after week, if not the teacher, certainly one of the students, or one of the elders sitting there as they uh, they would do in the Jewish synagogue, he would have been hearing the preaching. He would have been listening. He would have been listening to the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders and teachers of that day in the first century proclaiming their answer to what happens after death, and how you can gain eternal life and acceptance with God. But, those answers that he'd heard from the pulpits in the synagogues of his day, clearly were not satisfactory. He needed more. He wanted to go to this good teacher and find better answers. More comforting answers. More certain answers. So he's self-consciously dissatisfied, he's awakened in his conscience, and so this man brings his most pressing question of all to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's, of course, a very important thing to do. Whatever else we say about this man's question, he brought it to the right place. You say, well, uh, isn't that just unique? I mean, how could I bring my question to Jesus? Well, you can bring your question to Jesus in the same way. In fact, in a way that that is unique in itself, compared to this man's own experience. You can bring your question to the entire Word of God. You can bring your question uh, to books of the Bible that this rich young ruler never had access to. He spoke to Jesus here, let's just say it was a long conversation, we don't know that, but certainly he didn't speak to Jesus for more than an hour. We get the impression it was a lot shorter of a conversation, This is probably just the highlights. But I think we can say for sure he didn't talk to Jesus for more than an hour. So let's just say he had one hour at most in interacting with Jesus here. You can come to Jesus and open up the Word of God and read the the books of the Old Testament in light of the books of the New Testament. You can read everything that Jesus said and did that's recorded in the Bible. And you can bring your questions knowing that the Bible is designed by God to answer every question that you need answered to have eternal life. That's the whole point of this book. If there's something you need to know to have eternal life, it's in this book. And you say, well, that's a big book. Well, it is a big book, but you know you can read through it. It's not difficult. You can start in those books of the Bible that most directly address the question of eternal life, which would be, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where Jesus is going around telling people to ha- how to have eternal life. Uh, you can get hold of uh, good Christian resources that will point you to some of the key verses. You can talk to me afterward or a Christian friend. But th- there, there, there are more directly relevant Bible verses to that question than you have time to read in the next three weeks. Okay? So there's plenty of material. And you can bring your pressing question to Jesus And be confident that his word will answer you. And will give you all that you need to be assured of eternal life. And so this man uh, makes a good decision here. He makes a good decision. He brings his most pressing question to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's an urgent question. It's so urgent that Mark's gospel, Mark 10 verse 17, tells us that... He came running to Jesus. Uh, Mark 10, 17, Now as Jesus was going out on the road, one came running. Think about that. This man who was wealthy, who was young, okay, so he's got some youthful energy, He's, he's sprinting, okay, but he's using that energy to come to Jesus and he would have had all kinds of reputation and dignity, wealth and power, and yet he humbles himself to urgently seek this carpenter, this rabbi, this Jesus, who was on the outs with most of the religious community of that day. We're not told that he comes at night, so he's not even ashamed to see Jesus and to run to him. In fact, if you go to Mark 10, verse 17, you follow out the verse, it says, and he knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do? So, this man brings an urgent question, a respectful question, and he's unashamed to ask it in the presence of other people who might notice and record and, well, of course, now, thousands, you know, 2,000 years later, we're reading about it, but he wasn't ashamed to have this in the light of day that he approaches Jesus of Nazareth and asks this question urgently and respectfully. It's very important that when we come to Jesus with our questions that we're urgent. That we make it our priority. This man didn't say, well, I'll just sit around doing what I'm doing and if Jesus walks by. No, he finds where Jesus is, he drops what he's doing, and he goes to Jesus. It's his priority. It's an urgent question, and when he gets there, he's respectful He's not Mr. Know-it-all saying, well, I'm a ruler in the Senate. No, he he bows down, kneels down before Jesus of Nazareth and asks this urgent, respectful question. That's how we need to bring our questions to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, We need to prioritize it. Don't tell me you actually want to know how to have eternal life if you don't have time to open the Word of God, if you don't have time to turn off the television and seriously study God's Word and make it a priority, or don't have time to get up in the morning, sleep is more precious than than finding out how to have eternal life and avoid the wrath of God. If that's your priority, then sleep on, my friend. Sleep on. Sleep on for eternity. This man was urgent And he came to Jesus as of first importance and he asked this question respectfully. He he, He didn't come critiquing Jesus and debating Jesus. He came as a teachable learner. It's also a relevant question. Notice that this rich young ruler, he says, What good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? It's a relevant question. Sometimes people came to Jesus with other types of questions, right? These hypothetical questions, either trying to trip him up or uh, these questions that had no actual relevance to their own life situation or to their eternal destiny. You've got the Sadducees who were uh, Bible skeptics. Religious leaders they came to Jesus in Matthew chapter 22, and they're saying, "Well, Jesus, what do you think of this scenario? There's a woman, she's married set to you know seven times to seven different men, and you know the one dies, she marries the next one, and so it goes." And there's this sort of hypothetical, or maybe it was a real instance, but they're they're referring to this woman and her seven husbands, and well, uh, if they all go to heaven, who's she going to be married to? in the resurrection from the dead. That's a totally irrelevant question uh, for their eternal destiny. And you find this even in the church or if you're out sharing the gospel on the streets, there will be people that have some interest to ask a question, but it's some question, you know, how did Cain find a wife or something like that? I'm not saying totally irrelevant, but it's not the most pressing question that you need to be asking. And in the life of the church, this is especially a problem where you have people that are actually unconverted and unrepentant in the church, and yet instead of spending their time seeking the Lord and seeking to make their own calling and election sure, they're, they're busying themselves studying the doctrine of predestination and and God's eternal decree and making everybody else's calling and election sure in terms of these elaborate doctrinal formulas, when in reality, you need to be a little bit more like this man who says, how do I have eternal life? What about me? Secure your own mask before assisting others in figuring out all the deep, dark uh, dilemmas of the universe. It's a relevant question and it's a vital question. It's a vital question. We use that word vital. And the word actually comes from Latin, and it means uh, life or living. This is a question that is essential to your life. This is a question that is of the utmost importance for your eternal existence for your eternal survival we could say in terms of enjoying the blessedness of god it's a vital question it's a life and death question as we say it's a question of eternal destiny and you find in the gospels people coming to jesus with so many questions that are just not of that same level of importance luke 12 you have a guy who comes and says to jesus listen Go tell my brother to split the inheritance with me. This man, I mean, we don't know if he addressed Jesus with any other questions in any other instances. It's the only, only instance where he appears in the Bible interacting with Jesus. So uh, let's assume for a moment, this is the only time that he ever saw Jesus face to face and had a chance to make a request of him. You know, One thing I ask of the Lord and will seek to obtain, tell my brother to share the inheritance with me. Um, we hope that man repented and had more, int- uh, more serious and important questions answered and came to faith and is enjoying an eternal inheritance as we speak. But the fact is, it's likely that that fatherly, brotherly inheritance is long gone and he's burning in hell. What a waste. And you have people in our day, because of the culture wars and because of the, the many uh, questions that arise about What about this ethical question? What about politics? And what about the role of civil government? And these can be important questions in their own right, in their own proportion. But they come to the Bible as if that's the main goal, to answer these questions about splitting the inheritance and how the society should be run and all of these things when they need to be coming with the most vital question first. And that is, how can I have eternal life? Those other things will come. And there are answers to those kinds of questions. The Bible says a lot about inheritance. But Jesus said, listen, he said to that man, who made me a judge between you guys? Uh, this is not my focus. This is not my calling to be an arbiter between people that are grabbing for uh, their, their, their grandpa's money or their dad's money. I'm here to point you to heavenly treasure and to eternal life. And that's the focus of the Bible. Those are the kind of questions that are most important and most vital. And, and let's be honest, this is a rare question. Uh, this is a rare question. The Bible says that there's a broad road that leads to destruction, and there are many on it, and that there's a narrow way that leads to eternal life, and few find it. And you say, well, few find it. Well, why are few finding it? Because few are seeking it. That's one reason why few are finding it. Few are even seeking it. Uh, At least this man wanted to know how he could have eternal life. At least his question had to deal with his eternal destiny. That's not the type of question that characterizes human beings by nature, whether in Jesus' day or in our day. Jesus tells us the kind of questions that people tend to ask who are unconverted and who are unawakened and who are just sleeping on the train tracks on a collision course with God's judgment he says Matthew 6 31 uh, therefore do not worry saying what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear for after all these things the gentiles in other words in his context that's a way of saying people that are outside of the church people that are outside of God's covenant community people that are conformed to the pattern of this present evil age Those people seek those things. Those people are constantly asking, what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? These are the most important things. And I'm not saying it's wrong to appreciate good food, drink, and clothing. But when this becomes the thing we talk about, the thing we think about, the thing that we plan for, and we've got all our plans for this festivity that's coming up, and I know what we're going to be eating, and I know what we're going to be drinking, and I know what I'm going to be wearing, and I've got it all planned out. But have you planned for your eternity? The Gentiles aren't making those types of plans. And we're told that our Heavenly Father knows that we need food, drink, and clothing but we must seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and He'll add to us all the things that we need. So it's a rare question that this man would leave as it were his food and his drink and run to Jesus to prepare for eternity. Unfortunately, it's a flawed question as well. It's a flawed question that this man asks. Good teacher... What good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? This man has a flawed view of Christ himself. He has a low view of Christ, as many do. Oh, he's a good teacher. He's a prophet. Many of the people that ultimately raised their hand and gave their uh, approval for the crucifixion of Christ at one point acknowledged Jesus as a teacher, come from God. Even the Pharisees acknowledge that. He's a good teacher. He's a teacher come from God. Uh, He does mighty works. He's a prophet. He's a good teacher. And there are people in our day who say, yes, of course. Uh, Jesus told us to to love our neighbor as ourselves and gave us the golden rule. Jesus is a good teacher. He said many wise things, and and, uh, these are things that we need to take to heart and seek to emulate. He's an example He's taught mankind so many important truths. But for these people and and for this man, Jesus is nothing more than that. He's just the sort of person who would have the knowledge to tell you, here's what you need to do to get eternal life. He's a religious guru. He's a Bible answer man. He can say, well, here's what God requires for you to be saved. Here, go do it. And, and, And that's it. He just gives you the information, tells you what you need to do to go save yourself. He's just a good teacher. He's just a conveyor of pertinent, relevant information, and that's all. But the Bible tells us that Jesus is not merely a prophet, but that He's also a priest and a king. Jesus not not only tells us about sin and about eternal life, but Jesus is actually the great high priest who has himself offered himself as the perfect sacrifice for sins to reconcile his people to God. He is the one who has done the great thing and accomplished the great work to secure and purchase and obtain and inherit eternal life. And that's so important. He doesn't just give a message of how to be saved, but He's the one who accomplishes salvation. In fact, His name means uh, He shall save His people from their sins. And He's also a king. He's a sovereign king who must conquer us. We're enemies of God by nature and by His Holy Spirit and His Word, He conquers us. He subdues us to Himself. It's impossible with men but all things are possible with Him. Which reminds us, of course, that He's not merely a man at all. It's not just that He's a human prophet, priest, and king, but the name Jesus, yes, the, the broader explanation is He shall save His people from their sins. That's true. But the name itself means, literally, Jehovah saves. Jehovah saves. And If you look at Matthew chapter 1, When the angel explains the meaning of His name and of His birth, notice the way in which he puts it. Matthew 1.21, and she will bring forth a son and you shall call His name Jesus. It literally means Jehovah saves. For He will save His people from their sins. In other words, Jehovah saves and and this one who is now born he will save, therefore He is Jehovah. He is the Lord. He is God. And then verse 23, the angel quotes, or Matthew quotes under inspiration, the prophecy from Isaiah 7, behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. So, Jehovah saves and Jesus saves, so He's Jehovah. In fact, He is God with us. That's the clear teaching of the Bible. That's the clear message concerning the identity of Christ. And uh, at times, Jesus would, would be uh, less vocal about that. But for the most part, you look through His ministry, He's testifying to this in one way or the other, again and again. And this man didn't understand He had a low view of Christ. He didn't understand that. And it's interesting, Jesus says to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. It's almost as if he's kind of sowing a seed there. Well, do you know what you're actually saying? When you refer to goodness, do you understand that the standard of goodness is God? And so when you say that I'm good, what are you saying? And and it's just a little seed that he's planting, but we know from the other scriptures that he is God himself. And this man didn't understand that. Do you understand that? The Bible says that to be saved, you need to believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Do you understand that When we say that, we're saying you need to confess that Jesus is Jehovah, the Lord who saves, the the eternal Son of God, the prophet, the priest, and the king. This man also had a flawed view of himself. His view of himself was far too high. He says of Jesus, oh, you're a good teacher. And then he says of himself, "Uh, what good thing should I do to have eternal life? You're good, and I can do good things. So he puts himself on par with Jesus. Again, as if Jesus is just an example. Jesus is out there doing good things, saying good things, and and if I listen to Jesus, he'll tell me how I can join in and, and do good things as well. He has such a high view of himself, and that's what we do by nature, friends. We bring God and Christ down, and we bring ourselves up. And we make ourselves big, and we make God small. A flawed view of himself he has a flawed view of salvation what must i do what must i do now you look at something like that and you say well but other parts of the bible you have people that are truly converted and the first thing out of their mouth as they're being awakened is what must i do to be saved and The apostles don't confront them and say, well, oh, you can't do anything. No, they say repent and believe and things like that. Uh, But this man is not asking, what must I do to receive the gracious gift of salvation? How can I receive what God has accomplished for me in His Son? How can I receive that Uh, uh, with no merit or, or, or effort, as it were, of my own? That's not what he's asking here. This man was a ruler in the synagogue and this man would have been saturated with the teaching of that day. He would have been saturated with the teaching of that day which deviated from the teaching of the Old Testament which taught that man by nature is full of sin, that our best works of righteousness are as filthy rags in the sight of God, that by nature were conceived and born in sin. And that all the thoughts and intents of our hearts are all evil continually. These are all quotations from the Hebrew Bible. And that even as Proverbs 21.4 says, even the plowing of the wicked is sin. So if you're a fallen sinner and you've come into the world outside of Christ, even, even when you plow your field, even your good works are bad good works because they're corrupted by the sin that dominates your life. Such that your thoughts, your words, your actions, your, your very being is defiled and corrupted and worthy of damnation. That's the teaching of the Hebrew Bible. Uh, but again, this man had a flawed view of all these things. And so, he's thinking, well, salvation's just something I need to acquire. It's something I need to inherit. How can I inherit it? How can I get it? How can I obtain it? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And you, you see many examples of this. this, this whole mentality is to a large extent one of the major themes of the New Testament seeking to refute this type of thinking. Romans chapter 10 verses 3 and 4 describes the Jews of that day and, and Paul who was a Jew who had believed the very same things that this rich young ruler no doubt believed, says this, For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So this man is ignorant of the fact that he has no righteousness and therefore cannot obtain eternal life. He needs a righteousness freely given by God but he's not willing to submit to it or he's ignorant of it one way or the other he's not seeking it nor has he obtained it and therefore he needs to seek it from Christ and Jesus confronts him with this he confronts him lovingly with the law of God he confronts this man lovingly we know it's lovingly because mark 10:21 tells us then Jesus at one point during these interactions, Jesus looks at him and it says, he loved him. He loved him. Now again, there are people who are going to say, well, see, there we know he was elect. My friends, Jesus answers people's questions in a loving way. And he shows love to his neighbor, not just his elect neighbor. If Jesus hated his non-elect neighbors, he wouldn't have been the perfect, uh, perfectly obedient Savior because he would have been violating the law of God. But we're told here in particular Jesus looked at this man and loved him. Jesus had compassion on him. As we have a duty to do in compliance with the law of God, in imitation of the character of God, we have a duty to, to have compassion on people who are either ignorant of or unwilling to submit to the righteousness of God. We need to love them. Jesus looked at this man, and he lovingly confronted him. He confronted him with the holiness of God. As I said, he, he, he tells the man, no one is good but one, that is God. In other words, this human righteousness, th- this phenomenon that you see even in our own day, people think, oh, I'm good enough for God, I'm a good person, I try to treat people well, I'm not perfect, but... Come judgment day, God is merciful and I'm a pretty decent person, so this is all going to work out for the best. Jesus confronts this man with the holiness of God, saying, listen, if you think you're not such a bad guy because you compare well with other people, think again. Because you're not going to be judged by the standard of other people. You're not going to be judged by a comparative standard. I don't know if they use these in schools anymore, but in my day in school, when there was an exam and it was really hard and maybe the best grade was a B plus and nobody got an A, uh, the teacher would say, well, we're gonna judge this on the curve and so if the person that got the B plus gets an A plus and everybody gets bumped up a grade level. I don't know if teachers do that anymore. But God doesn't judge on the curve. That's not how God is gonna operate things on the day of judgment. He's not going to say, well, you're a sinner, you violated my law, but hey, you're not as bad as Uncle Bill, so we'll let you in. It doesn't work like that. God alone is the standard and the definition of goodness. The Bible tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of Uncle Bill. No, God. You're going to be judged by the standard of God's glorious holiness. And Psalm 130, verse 3 says, if the Lord should keep track of iniquity, which we know He does, and He's going to open the books on Judgment Day, if the Lord should mark iniquity, who could stand? Who could stand? We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of the God who defines goodness. So He confronts Him with that. Secondly, He confronts Him lovingly with the standard of God's law. People that think that they're right with God based upon their own performance inevitably and invariably corrupt the law of God to suit those claims. And in this case, the first century Jewish community, the Pharisees, had dumbed down the law of God to something that was more easily manageable. And they did it in two ways. First, they corrupted the breadth of God's law. The Scriptures tell us in Psalms that God's law is exceedingly broad. Uh, It it addresses every situation, every circumstance, and God has given us His law in ten commandments, and it's exceedingly broad. And Galatians chapter 3 tells us that if we've broken even one of these commands, we're disqualified from heaven and under a curse. James chapter 2, verse 10 tells us if we've broken one law, we've broken the whole thing and we're guilty before God. I mean, what did Adam and Eve do? They ate the forbidden fruit and then they were cursed, right? One sin, the wages of even one sin is death. But this guy, when he's confronted with the law of God and Jesus says to him, uh, if you want to enter life, keep the commandments, what does he do? He says, which ones? He limits it. In other words, Jesus is saying, if you're going to get to eternal life by your own performance, you're going to have to keep all of the commandments of God perfectly. You're going to have to perfectly reflect the character of the God who defines goodness. And so, there's your marching orders. Um, If you're going to climb the mountain, there it is, go for it. And Jesus does this, as any good evangelist is going to do, to to disabuse us of any thought that we could earn or obtain eternal life by our own performance. Jesus says, you want to get to heaven by your good works? Okay, have you perfectly kept the law of God? And will you perfectly, perpetually keep it intact without ever sinning in thought, word, and deed, without ever violating any of the commandments? And this guy says, which ones? Just like the guy who asked Jesus... uh, you know, I'm supposed to love my neighbor. Who's my neighbor? Right? Why is he saying that? Well, he's saying that because maybe there's some people that he doesn't really want to love and he wants a more limited definition. Uh, which neighbors? Which people are my neighbors? Which commandments? Uh, and, and Jesus plays along. He, he gives some examples. You shall not murder. Uh, don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Honor your parents. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus especially clinches it with that last commandment which is all encompassing of our relationships with others. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus is saying essentially that the law of God is exceedingly broad. Don't try to limit it. Don't try to dumb it down. Don't try to say, well, I've I haven't murdered anybody, but but I've committed sexual sin, but at least I haven't murdered anyone. I haven't stolen anything I'm really not loving to my neighbor or to my enemies or to people in the office and I don't treat my spouse well and and so on and so forth but I, I haven't committed perjury Jesus says you can't you can't do that also the depth of the law is being diluted here it's, it's being underestimated by this rich young ruler He says, all these things I've kept from my youth, what do I still lack? Well, he may have thought he'd kept these from his youth and based on the Pharisaical false teaching of the day, he probably thought that he did keep them from his youth. But we know from Jesus' own teachings and from the Old Testament, we know that murder is not merely walking up to someone and blowing them away, okay? We know that bearing false witness is not simply walking into a courtroom swearing to tell the truth and then telling a bold-faced lie. We know that um, there are are deeper meanings and applications of these commandments. You know, thou shalt not steal is not simply don't go into Best Buy and walk out with with an Xbox or something like that without paying for it. Uh, Jesus tells us that hatred in our heart towards our brother, towards anybody, anger without a cause. These things are forms of murder and they give birth to murder in the heart. Looking lustfully at another person is a form of adultery and fornication. But of course in our own day we see the full-fledged physical examples of these rampant with abortion and, and uh, sexual sin. But, but understand, there are many applications of the law of God but ultimately examine yourself. Do you love your neighbor as you love yourself see the law of god is spiritual it it deals with the love in your heart it deals with the thoughts and intents of your soul the law of god it hits its climax with the 10th commandment which says you shall not covet coveting is not an external sin friends it deals with the heart and and this man especially needs to understand the nature of the law of God that exposes the, the, the idolatry of our hearts. And I think that's why Jesus leaves off the 10th commandment. He doesn't, he doesn't bring attention to it. Or we could say he brings attention to it by not mentioning it. He doesn't mention the 10th commandment. Perhaps the rich young ruler is waiting for him to mention it, but he doesn't. And he doesn't mention the first table of God's law. Our duty toward God. To not have any other gods before him especially. And and that works itself out in the other commandments. He doesn't mention anything about idolatry. And he doesn't mention anything about covetousness. Why? Because he's prompting this man to think about that. Well, why did he leave those out? And eventually, the Lord calls him to faith and repentance. Exposing his own covetousness, which is idolatry. This man has done some outward good deeds. This man has restrained his conduct in certain big areas. But deep down in his heart, he loves his money. He loves his money more than God. He wants more and more money, more than he wants a deeper relationship with God. And when it comes down to it, he would rather keep his money and leave God at arm's length. And Jesus confronts him for this covetousness, which is his greatest form of idolatry. But he does it in a way that calls him to faith and repentance. He calls him to faith in this sense. Verse 21, if you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. In other words, Jesus is exposing this man's most flagrant, life-dominating sin of covetousness, which is his idolatry. And therefore, by saying, you want, to go, you want to earn eternal life? Okay, give up your money. You don't want to, do you? Do you want to be perfect? No, you actually don't. You don't want it that badly, do you? You love your money. You love your money. You covet money. You covet it more than you love and covet eternal life. And so, you're a sinner, you're a lawbreaker. You need to put your trust in a righteousness outside of yourself. As Jesus illustrates for the disciples, He says, for a rich man, especially one that loves his money and covets money, it's impossible for him to be saved. It's it's more likely that a camel would get through the eye of a needle than that such a man would be saved. It's only possible through the omnipotent, almighty grace and mercy of God. That's the only way. But you see, Jesus is is hemming this man in by pointing out his violation of the law of God, which demonstrates his need to seek a righteousness outside of himself. But it's also a call to repentance. And we're wrapping up here very quickly, but it's a call to repentance as well. Jesus actually is calling him to sell everything it's not just to reveal his sin as some kind of hypothetical maneuver. Jesus is calling him to repent and to sell all of the things that have become the idol in his life and to surrender it all and to follow me. Jesus is actually calling him to do that. And later in the chapter he says to Peter, those who by the grace of God who has converted them with almighty power those who do that will receive eternal treasure in heaven and rewards those who turn from their idols to the living god will reap eternal treasure in heaven so he is actually though he's calling him to faith and illustrating his law breaking he's also calling him by the grace of god to repent and turn to believe in the message of grace and to be empowered to turn from his idols and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps even following Him as a a more close associate or disciple. That's what He's saying. And that's what He's calling you to do. And that's the call of the Gospel. It says, abandon your own self-righteousness through faith. Abandon your idols through repentance. Turn to the Lord and He will abundantly pardon you and receive you to Himself. And follow Him. And He will never let you down. And this man sadly chooses his idol and goes away sorrowful. My dear friend, those who choose their idol will eventually lose their idol. This man if he did not repent and believe in Christ is burning in hell and he's not a rich young ruler anymore. He's a poor, penniless, condemned sinner. Suffering under the wrath of God. Utterly dissatisfied to an extent far worse than he was in the pages of Scripture as he's presented to us beware of that choice. Beware of clinging to the things of this world. You can see he almost kind of understands the foolishness of what he's doing, but he he just can't help himself. He walks away from Jesus. He goes away sorrowful. Those who follow after another God, their sorrows will be multiplied, the Bible says. He feels the weight of the foolish decision he's making. He's awakened in his conscience. He's sinning against his conscience. His conscience is crying out in his soul. Don't do it! But he does it. Because he loves his money. And he worships his idol. And he would rather be a slave of the almighty dollar, we could say, than a servant of Jesus Christ. My friends, apart from the omnipotent sovereign grace of god that is every single one of us because let's face it compared to most of the world we're all rich we all have a lot more rights and abilities in this nation you could say we're all rulers we're not all young but we have the kind of medical care that we all probably have a life expectancy far more than most people throughout the world in some sense although maybe those statistics are nosediving lately but the fact is we have so many of these outward privileges we have so many of these things but what is our chief love what do we choose What do we desire above all else? Will we be damned with the rich young ruler? Or will we be converted by the sovereign grace of Almighty God? Let's pray. Lord God in heaven, we pray that you would cause your word and your Holy Spirit to do great and mighty wonders this day and to bring to salvation Those who are yet in their sins, even as it were, bringing those camels through the eye of the needle and giving new life that they may see and enter the kingdom of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.